Bless the Lord. Hope you've got your Bibles this morning. We're going to be using a bit of Scripture. It's not a lot of point in being here without the Word of God. In fact, we wouldn't even know to be here without the Word of God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. This is a subject that I've taught on before, but I uh, just feel to teach on it again. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God... That's not talking about the preacher. That's talking about all of us. The man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Amen. I'm going to minister to you this morning from the Word of God about the Word of God. Amen. One of the greatest privileges of our time is the ease with which we are able to access the Scriptures. There are still places in the world today where owning a Bible can be risky where it may bring persecution upon you, but the availability of God's Word at a global level has never been as great as it is right now. There's never been the ease with which you can purchase a Bible, you can download a Bible, you can listen to a Bible. There's never been a time when there's been such access to the Word of God as there is right now. Amen. And in stark contrast to that fact is the tragedy that so many do not take advantage of this access. And many more question whether or not the Word of God is of any value in our present day today. As I was preparing this message and seeking the mind of the Lord, I got to thinking about William Tyndale. And if you don't know that name, he was a man some centuries ago who lived in a time when the common man did not have the Word of God in his house or in his hands. And in fact, it was in Latin, and it was literally not figuratively, but literally chained to the pulpit of the Orthodox Church, and the common man could not read the Latin language. And so he was at the mercy of whoever read it to him that he had to trust what they said. William Tyndale got a burden and a passion that I believe came from God to translate the Scriptures into the language of the common man so that people like you and I would be able to open Bibles and read the Word of God for ourselves, And eventually, because of his wickedness in wanting the common man to have the Word of God, the established religion of his time hunted him like the world's most wanted fugitive. And he lived on the run. He went from place to place, staying with friends, hiding in different cities and towns and villages, and carrying with him his manuscripts as he so tediously accurately translated from the original Greek languages into the English of his day. And eventually, I believe, he was betrayed by somebody that he thought was a friend. They took him and they executed him. They burnt him at the stake, I think, if I remember my history correctly, for the terrible, terrible sin of wanting the Word of God to be in the English language. I wonder... Today, what William Tyndale and those that worked with him would say if they could see the apathy in our society towards the Word of God. Men who put their existences on the line so that you and I could hold it in our hands. I wonder how he would feel 
at the fact that the Word of God is treated with such disregard in our society. And not only that, I wonder what he would think of some of the versions and varieties of it that are available today. I don't think William Tyndale would have died for the New International Version. That's just my personal opinion. You can disregard that. But Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he told him that all of Scripture, not some, but all of Scripture, was given by the inspiration of God. And those of you that have studied the Scripture know that that word inspiration is taken from a Greek word which literally means it was breathed by God. The Scripture was the expression or is the expression of God himself. He also wrote, the same apostle wrote to the Galatians and he told them, he said, if somebody, anybody, even an angel, comes to you and preaches a different gospel other than what we have preached to you, he said, he didn't say you were to be polite to them and send them on their way, he said they were to be accursed. Very, very strong language. So when it comes to the scripture this morning, we accept it, all of it, as it claims to be, or we discard it as fanciful fairy tales. There is no middle road. There's no selected passages that we can say, well, I agree with that. There's no sanitizing of scriptures to suit the way that we feel about things. It's either God's word or it's not. Because if it claims to be completely inspired, you either believe that or you don't. Bless the Lord. I feel a very strong urging, if you like, or unction from the Lord this morning to remind us that the book that many of you are holding in your hands or possibly looking at on your phones is not just an opinion. It's not just a reference book that you might find interesting that may in the first half a dozen pages have your family's tree recorded or somewhere that you press flowers in to make them nice. It's not just a blog or an editorial piece or an opinion piece. This book is the inspired word of God. That means that everything in it is true. And there are people that will say, well, what about this and what about that? And, what? and look, we can deal with all the whatabouts. I'm happy to handle anybody's questions about Scripture because the Bible defends itself. And it has stood the test of time. It is not subject to time. Because even though it, we can go back in history and say, well, that's when it was translated into English and that's when this version was printed... It is not from time, it is from eternity, because if God breathed it, then its source is not in calendars and clocks, but its source is in eternity, in the realm that God dwells in. The Word of God is not subject to trends. It is not subject to the constantly changing opinions and philosophies of humanity. My Bible tells me that it is settled forever in heaven. When God gave it, he said, that's it. There's no updates. There's no revisions. There's no things that he will go back and change later on. And there's not, God doesn't say, well, hang on a sec. Because it's 2015, we need to take this epistle out and bring in a relevant one. No, no. This book is settled forever in heaven. Amen. The Word of God is unique. It's nothing like it. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but none of the supposedly sacred texts of any faith can hold a candle to the Scripture. None of them can compare 
to the living Word of God. The Word of God reveals to us, first of all, that God exists. People that profess to believe in God without acknowledging the Scripture confuse me greatly. I don't know how one is possible without the other. Unless this God you believe in is something you've conjured up yourself. But the Word of God reveals to us His existence, and then it reveals to us that we have broken His law, that we have not kept His Word, and that we stand guilty before Him. In fact, it is the Word of God that judges our guilt. Amen. But the same Word also tells us that God loved us enough to manifest Himself in flesh and to fulfill the requirements of His own Word by paying the price in our place. God did not change His Word when He went to Calvary. He fulfilled His Word when He went to Calvary. Amen. In doing so, He made it possible for us now to obey His Word and to start a brand new life. So not only that, but the Word that first condemned us, then saved us, now teaches us how to live a holy and a righteous life. It's the complete package. There's nothing that we need that is not in the Word of God. What a book. Amen. What a God that we serve. Amen. And so Paul told Timothy, he said, this book is inspired. And he said, it is profitable in verse 17. It is profitable for us. Amen. Or in verse 16, rather. In other words, it's valuable. It's good for us. It benefits us. How is it profitable? It's profitable for doctrine. A lot of people don't like that word, but doctrine just means teaching. When you and I went to school, they taught us math doctrine and English doctrine and science doctrine and all that other kind of doctrine that not many of us liked. But it teaches us. The Word of God is profitable in that it teaches us. It's profitable for reproof. In other words, it convicts us sometimes. It chastens us. It's profitable for correction. Sometimes the Word of God will straighten us up, bring us back into line. And it gives us instruction in righteousness. In other words, it says this is how you should live. This is who you are supposed to be. This is who God made you in His image to be. Now those experiences are not all pleasant. I don't like correction. I don't like reproof. But it's profitable for me from the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. I'm going to let you turn there. Sometimes I'm guilty of rushing through Scripture and I think helping people to turn there is a good thing. I'd like to say I won't do it anymore, but that would probably promise I can't keep. But Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Some of you could quote this for me if I asked you to this morning, but I won't put anybody on the spot. The writer of Hebrews said, For the word of God is quick. It means it's alive. And it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest or revealed in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the writer of Hebrews says that this book, the Word of God, is sharper than a sword. It tells us that it pierces, it divides, 
It discerns and it exposes. Everything is naked before the Word of God. There's nothing you can hide when you stand before the Word of God because it doesn't just look on what's going on on the outside. It gets into the heart and right down into the thoughts and the intent. Let me make a statement this morning, and I, I want you to understand what I'm saying. If the Word of God doesn't hurt you sometimes, if it doesn't make you a little upset, even angry sometimes, something's wrong. I'm going to say that again. If the Word of God does not hurt you sometimes, I mean your feelings, I don't mean do you damage. But if it does not hurt you sometimes, if it doesn't cause you to feel a little bit aggravated, then something is wrong. Amen. One of two things is happening. Either the preacher is just tickling your ears and telling you stories and nice things just to pass the 30, 45 minutes on a Sunday morning, or you've shut God out by hardening your heart. Because if it's a sword and it pierces, that means that there are times that at the pointy end of the Word of God is going to poke into my heart and I'm not going to feel very good. Bless the Lord. You see, there are times when the preaching will encourage you, and I like those times too. There are times when the teaching of the Word of God will open your understanding. And we need that. We need to grow in our understanding. But there are times that the Word of God should put you on your face. There are times that God's Word should cause you to become grief-stricken with your condition in His presence. And you ought to fall on your face before God and cry out to Him. And we don't like to hear about that, but that's what it does. When you study church history and you look at some of what are considered great revivals in church history and you read about the preaching of some of those men, they did not tickle people's ears. Jonathan Edwards is possibly one of the most famous names in the Welsh revivals and I'm not suggesting that I endorse everything that he preached, but his most famous message was not God wants to bless you and give you a new car. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. God wants your best life now. You will not find that in his notes. But the most famous message that Jonathan Edwards preached was called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The message that brought revival was the message of repentance. It was the message of exposing sin, of revealing the condition of men's hearts. And that's what the Word of God needs. To, I'm not suggesting that every time that somebody preaches, you ought to fall on your face and cry and carry on. No, no, no. Because the, the Word of God is a balanced diet. It gives us everything. But there are times that the Word of God ought to reach into us and twist our conscience. I want God's Word to do that to me. If I need the Word of God to pierce my heart, God, let it pierce my heart. Don't let me become hard. Don't let me brush it off and not listen when the Word of God speaks to me. Because if I reach that point where it has no feeling in me, something is dangerously wrong. Bless the Lord. When you read, when Jesus, you know, people's understanding of Jesus is so sanitized sometimes. They talk about his love and his compassion. He had all those things, but he was the same one that got right in the face of those Pharisees and Sadducees. Told them they were graves. Said, you look all good on the outside, you're painted white, but inside you're full of death. 
That's not very gentle and loving. One day he came to church, he came to the temple, and he wasn't happy with what was going on there. So he gathered around, he said, no, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but we need to discuss a couple of things. No, no, no. The Bible says he platted a whip. He platted a whip. And he went through the temple and applied that whip liberally to the people that were materialistic and profiting in the house of God. I wish people would understand the whole Jesus, not just the nice bits Jesus. His word will prick our hearts sometimes. Bless the Lord. You know, it worries me. Let me be honest. It worries me when there are people that go months and years without coming to an altar. Please understand me. I'm not suggesting that we should be at the altar every time we have a service. I think that's the other extreme. I've known pastors that have taught their churches every time the altar's open, you should all be there and all just come like clones. That's wrong. Because that just becomes a habit and a ritual. Oh, it's altar call time. Better go. It's like brushing your teeth. You know, it's the end of church. Let's go to the altar. That's not right. But if we go months and even into years and the Word of God doesn't bring us to an altar, that ought to concern us. Well, pastor, I pray at home. Yeah, that's good, but that's not in response to the Word of God. That's your relationship with God and you ought to pray at home. But if you go months, even God forbid into years and you don't find yourself at an altar in response to the Word of God, you need to check your pulse. Amen. I'll say it. Amen. Bless the Lord. Paul said to Timothy in verse 17, he said, We have this Word of God and it's profitable. Why? That the man of God may be perfect or complete. Not that you never have any faults because that doesn't happen. But that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished or completely put together. Equipped under all good works. In other words, in how we ought to live. And how God wants us to go about our business. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 11. Let's turn to this one. Ephesians 4 and 11. Same apostle Paul writing says, he says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. It's what we often call the fivefold ministry. And he said the reason he gave them in verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Can you see the connection between why we have the word and why we have the ministry? 2 Timothy 3 says the Word of God is inspired, it's profitable. What's it for? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Same apostle wrote to the Ephesians and said we've got the ministry, that the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying or the building up and equipping of the body of Christ. We have the Word of God and the ministry for our benefit. Amen. There is a direct connection. You cannot separate one from the other. You cannot just sit at home and read your Bible and think everything's fine. That's not biblical. It's not biblical. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's turn there. We're going to wear out our fingers today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. At least I'll keep you awake turning pages. Stay on the ball. I might ask you to stand and read something. No, I'm just kidding. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the preaching... Of the cross 
is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And then verse 21 says this, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. To break that down for you, it means that God decided in His own wisdom that it would not be through men's intellect that they would understand God. He said, But it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. Not foolish preaching, but the foolishness or that which doesn't seem to make sense in the wisdom of this world. By the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Titus chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, But has in due times manifested His word through preaching. Bless the Lord. We're talking about the word of God. Amen. When you come into this house, When you come into the the house of God, are you expecting God to speak to you or just the preacher to speak to you? Amen. Do you come desiring to hear a word from the Lord? What does this book mean to you today? What is its position in your understanding? Every time somebody stands in this pulpit and breaks the bread, so to speak, We need to receive it as if God is speaking directly to us. Can they make errors? Of course they can. Do I make errors? Yes. I'm very good at making regular errors. Somebody once said, I I learned so much from my mistakes, I'm thinking about making a few more. We can make errors. Yes. They might just be a young person. I don't say that meaning that lightly. They might just be a developing preacher. They may not have all the polish or somebody with experience, but if that individual, man, woman, young person, has been in prayer and sought the face of God and they opened the Word of God to us, we need to be listening for God's voice. We need to be listening. God, what is it you want to say to me today? Speak to me today, God. Give me direction. You know my situation. You know my circumstance. You know my questions. God, speak to me today. And when you're in prayer during the week and you come to the prayer room before the service, I want to encourage you to do that. Be in prayer. If you want to get more out of church, be in the prayer room before the service starts. But when you're in prayer before church, you need to pray, God, speak to me today through your servant. Whether it's a young person, older person, a quiet preacher, a loud preacher, a man, a woman. What, speak to me, God. Our young people ministered just recently. None of them are seasoned preachers. None of them can say they've got a master's in theology. Not that I'm sure that's necessarily, depending where you get it from, worth a whole lot. Excuse me, I probably shouldn't have said that. But, but our young people spoke to us, ministered to us, and God spoke to us. Because it's not about the polish of the vessel. It's about the God that wants to speak through the vessel. And so when you come to God's house, it will change your church experience if you come saying, God, speak to me today. Speak to me this morning, Lord. Speak to me tonight. I need to hear from you. That ought to be the cry of our hearts. Amen. But you see, if you do make that your prayer, 
if that is the desire of your heart, it creates a problem. It does. It creates a problem because if I pray and I ask God to speak to me believing that He will, then when He does, I find myself with an obligation to both accept and obey what He said. See, it's a package. You want God to speak to you, you have to believe that He will. And when He does, suddenly you have a responsibility with what He said. The Word of God speaks to you, even if it cuts into your heart, as it were. We, God, you spoke to me. What do I do with that now? What do I do with that? Oh, that's, I'm really glad that was preached this morning. That sister's needed to hear that for a while. I've been hoping she'd straighten up. Or he'd straighten up to make it fair. Bless the Lord. You see, we are saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by knowledge or wisdom. You're saved by grace and through faith. But as we grow in understanding of God, we also grow in obligation to God. When we don't know what God requires of us, we can plead ignorance to a certain degree. But once you've been born again and your understanding begins to grow, the more I understand of the Word of God, the more I become aware of His will in my life and the things that He requires of me, the more I am accountable to Him for the things that He has shown me. That's why you read in Scripture about new babes, people that have just been born again, eating the milk of God's Word. Thank you, Jesus, for that. But then you read where Paul writes to the Corinthians, I think it was, and he said, you're still on milk. He said, you should be eating meat by now. He said, you've been in this thing long enough, you should be growing up. Because the more that I understand of God's Word, the more that He holds me accountable to that. I've taught it many times, but we don't hold different ages children to the same accountability. If you have a 5-year-old and you have a 15-year-old, you don't expect their abilities to be the same or their understanding to be the same. And as we grow in the Lord, we are always saved by grace. That never changes. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we grow or mature ourselves, but there is an obligation that rests upon us when the Word of God is brought to our understanding and our attention. That's why in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer says, he says, don't lay the foundation again. He said, we've, we've built the foundation. That's established. Go on from there, he said. Go on unto perfection. In other words, build something on that foundation. Don't just keep going over the same basic stuff again. Grow. That's why the Apostle Peter said in, in one of his epistles, he wrote to us and he said, we've escaped the corruption of this world. He said, through faith, through the gospel, praise the Lord, we've escaped the penalty of sin. He said, but now, add to your faith. He didn't say, just stay there and keep it simple. He said, add to your faith, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not suggesting that you mature yourself. None of this is possible without the Holy Ghost. It's the Spirit of God that works in us to transform us, but we have to put our hand up and say, I want to be in the process. Because Peter said, you've got to give all diligence to those things. So there is a part we play. I cannot save myself from sin. You cannot save yourself from sin. Jesus paid the price for our sins. He brought us the gospel and His grace says, here's your opportunity to be saved. And our faith says, I'll take some of that. And He saves us from our sins when we're washed in His name and filled with His Spirit. But then as we grow in understanding and in knowledge, 
the things he wants from us grow as well. That's why we need the Word of God. That's why this Word matters so much. That's why when we approach it, we approach it as something that is holy, that is inspired, that is not negotiable, that is not subject to how I'm feeling on a particular day. And when it's preached to me, I treat it with a similar level of respect and reverence. I have the privilege of doing most of the preaching in this church. That's the call of God upon my life right now. But when I'm not preaching and somebody else is preaching, whether it's one of our other ministers here or one of a visiting minister or our young people or our Sunday school department, I pray God speak to me today. Speak to me, Lord, through this person, through this brother. You know, when our, when our ministry group gets up here and ministers, you ought to come with the same expectation as when a visiting evangelist comes through. Brother Jacob spoke to us about it a couple of weeks ago. He said, I'm not going to tell you anything that your preachers here don't already tell you. And he said, you could probably get the same stuff without the effort. But the Bible says, see, here's the thing. The Bible says, you read the Gospels. Jesus went here, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cast the devils out. But when he came to Nazareth, when he came to the part of town where he grew up, where he was just Jesus, only Jesus, oh, Mary's son, Jesus. The, when, when he came to his own neighborhood, the Bible says that he could not do many miracles. Why? Because the prophet was without, is without honor in his own country. They were used to who he was. They did not reverence him like the other people did. And so if you don't receive from the word of God from our regular crew, the problem's not with the ministry. The problem's with the receiving. Somebody say amen. Bless the Lord. Job told us, he said, I have not gone back from the commandment of his lips, and I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Bless the Lord. The psalmist said in Psalm 17 and 4, Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. He said, it's your word, God. By listening to this, by hearing this, it's kept me off the paths of the destroyer. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. Not by philosophy. He said, concerning the works of men or what's going on in society. In other words, they might all be going down that destructive path. He said, but I'm listening to a book. I'm reading a word and it's guiding me away from that pathway. Amen. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. How are we doing? Quite fast. The time of Samuel the prophet, there wasn't there were some problems going on with the people of the Lord. There wasn't much communication coming from God. Things were quiet on the prophet front. There weren't a lot of recognized prophets in the land the Bible tells us about. And we come to chapter 3, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. This is what it says. It says, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. Precious tells us that it was rare. There wasn't a lot of prophets getting around. They didn't hear from God very much. It wasn't necessarily that the people considered it precious. They may have. But the fact that it was precious speaks to us that there wasn't much happening. 
When you read the scripture through the Old Testament, there were periods in the nation of Israel's life where it seemed like God had closed heaven. For whatever reason, sometimes the people were in sin, whatever it may have been. But there are other times where there were prophets in the land that were speaking to the people regularly from God. But when Samuel came on the scene as a young man, the word of God was precious. They didn't hear very much from God. And they would have been willing to hear the word of God from anybody. Amen. Bless. I think one of the challenges that we face today is that it's not precious. In the same sense, preaching is available to us. Multiple services a week, podcasts, websites. There's no shortage of preaching. In fact, one of the biggest problems is there's too much. A lot of it's not good. Amen. But it doesn't change the fact that God speaks to you from His Word and that you ought to treat it as precious. Amen. It is, Job said, it's more important than my food. You know, when you sit down to have dinner, most of you probably say grace. We say, thank you, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Please bless it. In Jesus' name, if you're a kid, you don't want mom and dad to pray too long because you're hungry, you want to get into it. One of my old pastors, they had a, a, a new person at their dinner table one night, and as they were praying for the food, the Spirit of the Lord moved, and that young man got the Holy Ghost sitting at their dinner table. Now, I'm not sure if his children were rejoicing because their food was getting cold. But when you sit down and you have dinner, you don't think, this meal's keeping me alive tonight. Why don't you? Because you had one the night before, and you'll probably have one tomorrow night. But if you'd ever been through an experience where you could not get food, where you did not, for whatever reason, where there was a famine, whether you're in a part of the world where there was no availability of food, and you were at the point of starvation, and somebody brought you the exact same meal, your attitude would be completely different. You would recognize that what's on that plate is the difference between life and death. And it is in your house every night of the week. But because you eat every night of the week and some of us multiple times throughout the day as well, we don't think about life and death when we sit down at the dinner table. But it is. And we need to understand that when the Word of God is ministered to us because we have it so easily... We don't understand or appreciate that it is the difference between spiritual life and death. And if you went without it for a period of time, you might begin to understand how important it is in your life and how you ought to treat it as precious. When I was a kid, I was seven years old when my mother came into a Pentecostal church. Many of you have heard me tell the story. We came out of another group, shall we say, not wanting to be discrediting of others, but my mother came into Pentecost and had an incredible experience with God. She'd left behind a, 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 a faith that was traditional and had a lot of interesting ideas that weren't biblical, and she'd come into experience being born again as the Bible says you should be, and it had turned her life around and subsequently turned my whole family's lives around. But there, for whatever reason, things went by after a period of time and the man that was pastoring, looking after that little church, he left town and they were without a pastor. They didn't have a preacher. It wasn't like here where there's plenty others that could step up into the pulpit and cover if the pastor's not there. They didn't have preachers. They only had a handful of new believers. And so they didn't have a church. They went from these people that had just been miraculously born again with a pastor that was, that was ministering to them and caring for them and all of a sudden he was gone. And I remember as a little boy, I was probably eight, maybe nine years old, my mother going to other churches looking 
for food, so to speak. Wanting to hear the Word of God, but the problem was it wasn't the same message. And I remember as a kid, even as a kid, I, I, can have, I have these vague memories of my mother thinking, no, it's not the same thing. It's not what I'm used to. It's not the truth. These people have got some scripture going on, but it's not what I should be hearing. Don't be distracted by the little one. That's all right. And my mum said, we can't stay here. And then after a period of time, the Lord provided somebody to come to town and to gather again that little group of new believers and start that church again, start having services again. But you see, if you've never been through something like that, you don't have that same kind of gratitude. Sometimes the cliche is you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Amen. When you leave the house of God today, or any other day for that matter, what are you taking with you? What do you discuss? What are we talking about when we talk about the ministry that we've heard? Now, we, we use expressions, and I do it as well, so I'm not pointing at anybody. We, we say things like, well, you know, that was really interesting, the way they brought that out. I hadn't seen that like that before. Or maybe, I always enjoy that person's preaching. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't think those conversations are wrong at a basic level. But we've got to get beyond just, oh, yeah, that was an interesting message, to God spoke to me today through that brother through that sister. Something came from the pulpit this morning that was for my soul, that God wants me not to leave here, but to take with me, to consider, to think about, to to absorb into my spirit and, and help it to transform my life. That's what the Word of God is for. That's what it's designed to do. When it's preached, it's meant, even if it cuts... I've seen people stomp out of church because they weren't happy with something that was preached. And they go home and they wrestle with God. God, I'm not like that. I'm not really what he was talking about. I'm sure he was talking to me. He shouldn't say things like that. He should say it in a nicer way. And they go home and they wrestle. I know because I've done it. (laughs) And eventually you find a place and you say, God, if you need me to receive that and change, I want to surrender myself to you. And the purpose of God's word is achieved. That's what it's about. It's good that we get better understanding. Don't misunderstand me. I'd much rather hear a preacher I enjoy than someone I don't enjoy. But there's a bigger picture than that. The Word of God is designed to reach right down into our hearts. There's a story in the Old Testament. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but you can read it later in 1 Kings chapter 22. There's a prophet by the name of Micaiah, and he's a man of God in a wicked time. There's a wicked king by the name of Ahab who's trying to get another king, I think by the name of Jehoshaphat, to go into battle with him. And Jehoshaphat, they get together and Ahab brings in all these false prophets. And they all look great and they sound great and they're telling Ahab everything he wants to hear. Go, Ahab. You're going to beat the enemy. You're going to wipe them out. You're going to be the big man in town. But Jehoshaphat has just enough understanding to recognize that these guys are a bit shifty. And he says, is there not a man of God that we could ask? He's trying, you know, I know this, it's all very nice, this crowd you've got going here, these praise dancers with flags and such. He said, this, this, this is all lovely, but is there not a man of God? And he said, oh, there is this one prophet. His name's Micah, but I don't like him. Because he always tells me bad things. He always tells me things I don't want to hear. 
The reason for that was that Ahab was always doing things that he shouldn't have been doing. And so they said, all right, let's send for him. And so Ahab sends his messengers to get the man of God. And he tells his messengers, you tell that preacher, he better say what I want him to say or it's on. And so he comes in and they say, tell us what's going to happen. And Micaiah says, yeah, everything's going to be great, king. He's been sarcastic. The king says, don't mess, I'm paraphrasing. But the king says, don't mess with me. Tell me the truth. What's going to happen if we go to battle? And he says, I see Israel scattered as a sheep without a shepherd begins to tell a negative story about what will happen if they go into battle. And Ahab says, see, he always tells me bad news. If we have that kind of mindset to the Word of God, we're in a bad place. We need to let God's Word speak to us. John chapter 6, and I'm trying to hurry. Jesus was teaching some things that were pretty hard to take. He said to them, he said, well, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. That's okay. We all like bread. No problem there. And then a little few verses forward, he says, well, he says, my, my flesh is meat. And my blood is drink. And I'm like, okay, this is starting to weird out. And he says, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life in you and you won't be raised up in the last days. And they're like, whoa, things just got really heavy here. He went from talking about bread. Now this guy's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they misunderstood what he was saying because when you read on in the chapter, eventually it gets to a point where Jesus says, he says, look, he said, the flesh profits nothing. He said, I'm not talking about some kind of weird religious cannibalism. He said, the flesh profits nothing. He said, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. He's talking about receiving everything that he brings and that he is. He wasn't talking about chewing on his arm. He's talking about receiving his word. He said, the flesh is, is profitless. He said, but the words, they're, they're alive. They're spiritual. If you'll hear my words, that's why in another place he said, he that loves me will keep my commandments. But you see, it was too much for them. They couldn't handle it because you read on, it says that the, the, many of the larger group of disciples that followed him, they turned and they left. They couldn't handle the word of God. It was tough. Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, will you also go away? And trust me, they were thinking about it. They were thinking, this is a new thing. We haven't heard him talking like this before. But Peter said to the Lord, he said, where will we go, Lord? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And so when the word of God comes forward to us, to you and to me, if it cuts us, then walk away. It's the Word of God. It's where you find eternal life. It's not found outside. It's not found in the world. Amen. What am I driving at this morning? You need to love this book. Not just like it. Have a couple of copies. You need to love it. I'll go a step further. You need to love the preaching of the Word of God. Amen. You need to hear it. You need to obey it. You need to hunger and thirst for it. You see, when you love God, and you're walking with God, when you're in prayer, when you're worshiping God, and you're close to the Lord, when, there's, when you're walking closely to the Lord, the Word of God is alive. It's alive. It, it's, you open it, and you, the Spirit of God moves. I'm not saying it happens every single day. I know some of you that are doing the Bread Bible are glad that Leviticus is nearly done, or it's done. It's not an easy book to read. I understand that. But when, we, when we're in that relationship with God, the Word is alive because the author is alive to you. 
That's what it's about. But when you allow yourself, when I allow myself to wax cold, as the New Testament warns us, and the love and the grace and the salvation of Jesus Christ begin to fade. They're not so prominent in our thinking anymore, but they begin to fade. We will become dissatisfied with the bread of life. And our appetites will lust for carnal delicacies. Amen. That's what happens. Numbers chapter 11. I'm going to be quick. Some of you read this recently. The Bible talks about, it says there was a mixed multitude that was amongst the people of God. They got to lusting and they got to, started crying again. Moses had to put up with a lot of crying and moaning and carrying on. And they got to moaning and they said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? You see, God had been miraculously feeding them every single day. They got up every morning and just somehow overnight when the Jew came, there was this stuff that the Bible calls manna. It's really, you know, it's not exactly easy to work out exactly what it was like, but it was similar in some way to some sort of a grain because they were able to take it and grind it and make bread and cakes out of it. And they got, you know, we're talking about anywhere between one and a half to four million people. And every morning you get up and you walk out your tent and you stretch and yawn and there it is. Breakfast, lunch and dinner for that day, ready to go. That's not a bad deal. But they did what all humanity does and they became complacent. And they said, oh, I don't want to have this bread anymore. I want some flesh. So we remember in Egypt we had fish. Wasn't much fish in the desert. Not a real big fish market out there. We had cucumbers, melons. Sister Linda's growing a rock melon. They had melons. They had leeks and onions and garlic. All the wonderful things we had in Egypt. Let's not forget we also had slavery and brick pits and whips and bondage and all the other good stuff that went with the leeks and the garlics. And they said, we, we've had enough of this bread. It's, they've lost their appetite for it. You see, this same people had crossed the Red Sea. They'd seen the mighty hand of God deliver them. They'd seen water flow out of a rock. Now, when I say water flow out of a rock... It wasn't a little stone with a bit of condensation on it. This thing was big enough and the flow was strong enough that it watered all of the people and all of their herds and all of their flocks. This rock became a waterfall because that was an awful lot of water. They'd seen manna appear miraculously every morning. Give us this day our daily bread. But they begin to complain and desire the things they left behind. And so God said, okay, you want flesh? I'll give you flesh. You read on in that chapter, the Lord caused a wind to blow. And the wind brought up quails like little chickens. Little chickens. I used to use, we used to get them sometimes in the restaurants and places I worked. To me, they weren't worth the fuss because they're so small. It was like a nugget with legs. But these quails... These quails blew up from the sea in a multitude. So much so that the scripture says that they were around the camp, a day's journey in every direction. And two cubits high, that's around about this high. That's an awful lot of KFC. As far as you and the people went, wow. And they began to behave like they'd never had food in their lives and they were 
gathering it and stuffing it in their tents. And it, the Bible says that he that gathered the least gathered ten homers. Now, I don't know how much that is, but what it was saying is that they were grabbing as much as they could carry. Their greed overcame them. And the Bible says that while the flesh was yet between their teeth, while they were chewing on it like almost like wild animals, it says that the Lord smote the people. It says the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord smote them with a very great plague. And that doesn't tell us how many people died, but a whole bunch of people died. And they called the name of that place, my pronunciation's probably not perfect, but they called it Kibroth Hata'ava, which means the graves of lust. We have to understand that in this world that we live in this morning, we are not above dying spiritually at the hands of our own lusts. The things that we desire that God delivered us from. The things of this world when our appetite begins to become a little bit dull for the things of God and the Word of God seems a bit more of a chore than a blessing and everything just seems to be oh, just a bit, I've had enough. We will lust for the sinful things of this world. And you better be careful because if you want something bad enough, God may just let you have it. God gave them flesh. He also gave them the plague. Now that might not seem fair to the way you and I think, but I'm not sure God has to justify himself to us. Bless the Lord. Go with me back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Hopefully I'm going to try to wrap this up. I know I've been a little long. When you read the Word of God, when you read the epistles, epistles are normally written to either people as individuals or churches or groups of churches. That's what you, you read the epistles of the New Testament. So whenever you read the New Testament epistles, it's always good to keep in the back of your mind that these things are not written to the general populace, not written to the public. They were written to the church of warnings, of instruction, of correction, of direction, of teaching for the people in the church to respond to. Yeah, You don't teach. There's no point in, in writing to sinners about how to live godly if they haven't been born again. And the epistles are instruction for people that have already been born again. If you want to study it, you'll see in the book of Acts many of the, the, the beginnings of the churches that the epistles are written to. And so with that in our, as our platform, when we read Timothy, we read the end of chapter 3, all Scripture. And many of us can quote that. I, I was taught to memorize that verse when I was so young I don't remember how old I was. And that's one of those verses that seems to find its way in Sunday school memory verses. It just comes around. All Scripture, and it's a good verse to know. It's given by But what is the context of this passage? When you read the verses prior, if you go to the beginning of chapter 3, you read there's warnings. Paul said, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. And he goes on to list all of these things that are not good. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous. That's an old-fashioned word for credit card. Think about that for a moment. You'll understand. I've got one. I'm not saying you shouldn't have one. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. 
lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of... And it goes on, it's all these things. And he's writing to Timothy, warning him that these things will try to affect the church. That they will be present in the world, but they will also find their way within the house of God. And you need to take great care, Timothy. You need to be aware that these things will happen. And he said, he said, so he said well, how, how do you preserve yourself, Timothy? How do we keep ourselves from being affected by all this junk? And that's why Paul said, all Scripture. It's given by inspiration. When you read a little further up, in verse 10, Paul said, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. You know what I've been through for this thing, Timothy. Don't compromise on the Word of God. He said, when you face all these things that he warned him about, he said, all this stuff... These things that are ungodly, he said, the way to deal with that is all Scripture. It's given by inspiration of God. That's where you'll find true doctrine. That's where you'll find true instruction. That's where you'll find right reproof and right correction. It's all in the Word of God. Because all these other things will come from without and try to make their way in. And if we are not careful, that's exactly what will happen. But God's Word still stands. It's still inspired. It does not need to be revisited and updated. It is still the inspired Word of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 4 says, Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Nobody says to a king, Well, what do you think you're doing? He's the king. And this is the Word of God. He is the king of kings. So if he said it, we don't have it. Well, what do you think you're doing, God? This is a bit much. We don't have that privilege this morning. Where the word of a king is, there is power. The power is in the word of God. Amen. Let me make some comments in closing. The greatest threat, please don't misunderstand me this morning, the greatest threat to this generation, to the word of God and to the truth it contains, is not the world. It's not the devil. The Word of God stood against those things as long as there's been a Word of God. The world has come against the, devil, the Word. The devil has tried to destroy, to dilute, to distract. still stands. Those aren't the greatest things, the greatest threats to God's Word and to His truth. This book has stood the test of time. One of my favorite anecdotes is that a man by the name of Voltaire, who was a philosopher in France, he said, in 50 years, he said, the Bible will cease to exist. And after he died, they put a Bible shop in his house. Don't tell me God hasn't got a sense of humor. Like the Lord saying, really? I'll call that. Bless the Lord. The greatest threat to the Word of God and to the truth that's contained in it is a contemporary Christian culture. I'm not talking about denominations. I'm not here to bash this or bash that. That's not my purpose today. But when people claim to believe in God and in His Word and then they trade teaching for truth, sorry, they trade the teaching of truth for tolerance. They undermine the absolute truth of the Word of God. Well, we believe, you know, there are people that profess to be Christians that dispute the creation. There are people that say they believe in God, they believe they need to be saved, but they're not real sure if God actually made the world. This is the greatest threat 
to the truth of God's word. It's not the world. The world's never going to overcome the Lord. The Bible says, you know, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. The greatest threat is those that will profess to believe. And again, I'm not talking about particular nominations. The nominations never saved a soul yet. But when they undermine the absolute truth of God's word and they sacrifice principles, principles for philosophies, that's the greatest threat. Because when you remove the truth of God's word, or at least in your understanding, you can't actually remove it. It's there. But when you suddenly say, well, it's not absolute anymore and we need to consider it in a culturally relevant context and we need to be tolerant of different lifestyles and ways of life and preferences, you don't have a foundation anymore. All you've got is opinions and philosophies. And that's what Paul was warning about in 2 Timothy 3, when verse 5, when he said, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. A compromised church is of absolutely no value to a lost and a dying world. We compromise what the Word of God says. We might have more friends and upset less people, but we will be of no value to them. The Bible says that you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trod upon. And salt is only of value when it's kept separate from its environment. See, I, I grew up in North Queensland where the, the humidity is much more severe than it is here. You leave the lid of something like sugar or salt or the lid off the biscuit tin or whatever, and everything becomes soggy and useless because it's not been kept in a separate environment. I'm not saying you understand me well enough to know I'm not saying we're going to go live on top of a mountain in a monastery or a convent. But the Word of God teaches us. And it is, unfortunately, it is a contemporary, relevant Christian culture that is the greatest threat to the truth of God's Word. Let me give you an example. Some of you might have noticed on social media during the week there was an article. The article was about this lady. She's a Christian. I've got no idea what church she goes to or what her beliefs are. But she wrote an article on her blog. Anybody not know what a blog is? Okay. There are some folks that are honest and some don't want to raise their hands. A blog, I think, is an, an abbreviated form of what it was originally called a weblog. Basically, it's your, your ability to have your say on the internet. So you can start a blog and you can write about whatever you like. And other, your friends and family and people that share similar interests can come to you. You might have a blog about... I don't know, maybe you like to paint. Uh, maybe you like to go four-wheel driving. Maybe you like to cook. There are blogs about everything, and all they are is people's opinions. And people can go there and say, hey, I really enjoyed what you had to say. Have you tried this recipe? Have you been on this four-wheel drive track? All they are is an opinion. That's all they are. And this lady wrote on her personal blog how she felt like God had been dealing with her about wearing a particular kind of clothing, clothing that we often see in people that exercise. And she felt like, she felt like God had been dealing with her that it wasn't modest and she wanted, she wanted to make the change in her life. That was it. This seemingly harmless blog found its way into mainstream media and stirred up quite a bit of a reaction and controversy. People were having all sorts of opinions and that's the great thing about opinions is everybody's got one. And there was a lot of people who had all sorts of things to say about this lady. Yeah, she was old-fashioned and this is a lot of rubbish and on and on and on they went. 
And, but that's not a surprise from the world. But the thing that's disappointing is that there were people that professed to be Christians that came out against her publicly. Now, that's, that's okay if they don't have a difference of opinion. But the whole thing was that the thing, this is not just about an article of clothing. This is about a principle that does not change. And the principle that's found in the book is that we ought to be modest. And the people that were professing Christianity were not just attacking her opinion, but tearing down the fact of whether modesty was even necessary anymore at all. I'm not surprised by the fact that the world would come out against it. It was a blog. She didn't write a letter to the editor. She didn't go on the national news. She didn't look for public attention. She shared her views on her own private blog. And that's what happened. Where is the word of God in all of this? Where is the word of God? Amen. You see, God's word still calls for separation. It still calls for righteousness or living godly. Let me say this to you. Righteousness and holiness is impossible internally if it's not external. And it's impossible externally if it's not internal. It must be both. It must be both. The Word of God still calls for repentance of sins. We ought to love it. It does not change. It does not. You know, one of the things that concerns me as a pastor is that our kids don't know enough of this. My kids don't know enough of this. This book is life. This is not just some manuscript. This is the living Word of God. Stand with me if you would this morning. Hallelujah. We need to watch our appetites. You want flesh? God may let you have flesh. But it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's been there since the beginning. It was the Word of God spoken that created us and everything that we stand on and see. It's the Word of God that was manifest in the flesh to become our salvation. It's the Word of God that tells us our need for salvation, tells us how to be saved, tells us how to stay saved, warns us about the things we need to look out for, tells us that Jesus is coming back. It's the Word of God. It's not to be treated lightly. Bless the Lord. I stand here this morning to remind the church of what it is that we own and how powerful it is and why it must never ever be compromised. It will not make you popular, but it will save your soul. Paul said to Timothy, take heed unto your doctrine. In doing so, he said, you'll save yourself and them that hear thee. Amen. Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord for a moment.